I would think that many organizations kind of do not have any rational strategy for making IT decisions. And I think their alternatives would be to call an analyst or sort of screw up. Now think about something like threat intelligence and understanding the attacker motivations. It doesn't have the IT brother. Like AppSec has an IT brother, application development. NetSec has an IT brother, networking. But Threat Intel does not have an IT brother. Security is about paranoia and fear. And that's what makes it difficult for engineers to think about misuses of their platform. You can't pay for security because it involves educating your users and figuring out your personal risk profile and getting everyone's buy-in into it. Everyone in your org has to be bought into what you decide is your level of security. Hello, and welcome to Ollicast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io. And I'm Rachel Chalmers with Marion Ventures. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at Ollicast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. How has InfoSec changed as distributed systems get bigger and more complicated? You know, it's kind of funny because uh, in many cases, we see people point out at some innovation in technology. I don't know, a few years ago, cloud, today maybe containers. And they say, see, it changed. But here's something funny about InfoSec. Um, I feel like is in InfoSec, all the old stuff is still with us. I mean, I don't want to joke about securing Windows NT 4.0 or securing right. Windows 3.1. But to be honest, it actually happens. Nothing and we, ever dies. Yeah, in, in, in nothing, well, very little ever dies. And so it's almost like, how does X change security? It's more about how does adding X on top of a pile change security? Because, uh, I mean, a few years ago, I used to joke that more companies have Windows NT in their closets than cloud. I mean, today, I'd bet that it's more cloud for now in 2018, but there's still Windows NT here and there. So You know, there's this joke about how um, cutting-edge security is whatever cutting-edge ops was like five years ago. That's, yeah. Which is not, it's never fair. These jokes are never fair. They're always a little mean. But. I think that's on the process side. Actually, somebody just told that to mm. me today, earlier on a client call. They said, security is kind of a mess, but guess what? IT ops was a mess in 2000. True. But here's my fear. Ops, IT ops has grown up. I'm not sure security is capable of growing up. So it's kind of, Ooh. I have a fear. Maybe it will, but I wouldn't be shocked if it won't. Well, this seems like a good time to introduce yourself. Okay, so um, my name is Anton Chuvakin, and I have this um, kind of a funny, a little bit role at Gartner for technical professionals because, and here's why it's funny, uh, people often associate big analyst firms with giving advice to business stakeholders, but most of our work is actually giving advice to technologists. So we work at, I work at Gartner, but I mostly advise implementers and people who you know, architect, operate, deploy, and not necessarily people who write checks. Mm. So that's why it's a little peculiar. And I deal with all sorts of monitoring tech, intelligence, well, threat intelligence in this case, incident response, vulnerabilities. I don't deal with software security. I don't deal with, you know, antivirus, but I deal with a lot of monitoring, detection, response type stuff. And of course, yeah, I have my hands full with that. Cool. You're among your people here, uh, not only in that we're obsessed with monitoring, but um, I'm a fellow analyst. High five, analyst secret yeah, handshake. Yeah. <laughs> you retweeted that amazing piece by Brad Feld uh, talking to vendors, early stage founders, about how to manage their analyst relationships. 
And it brought up a lot of traumatic memories for me. So I'm going to ask you a question I ask myself at 3 a.m. Um, on balance, do you think the analyst industry has been good for tech or has it been the other thing? Actually, it's kind of funny that you use the same metaphor. I actually use the 3 a.m. question very often <laughs> on client calls. I say, well, here's the 3 a.m. vendor shortlist. If I don't know anything about your company and you just tell me top three vendors for doing X, at 3 a.m. I would give you these three. But I mean, generally speaking, that's uh, that's my kind of off the top of my head answer. So for 3 a.m. answer here is, yeah, I would say mostly positive. Mm -hmm. And here's why. I would think that many organizations kind of do not have any rational strategy for making IT decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think their alternatives would be to call an analyst or sort of screw up. Yeah. And now you can tell me that the enlightened people shouldn't do it. And I would agree with you. The enlightened people should not do it. And, you know, 90% of people aren't in the top 10 percentile, right? Yep. Yeah. So I think the analyst firms serve quite a critical need and a very positive need for people who need some kind of help making IT decisions. Oh, I totally, totally agree on the need. I think, and, you know, five years out of my last analyst gig, I think I've got enough perspective to say this. I think an awful lot of firms are not meeting that need as well as they should. So your question was not so much about is there a need, but is the current approach to serving this need working? There's exactly. a widespread uh, perception, at least among vendors, that it's very pay-to-play. Well, frankly, in my daily job, there's a, a lot less of that because, again, as I mentioned before, I deal with mostly with implementation stage problems or architecture mm -hmm. and a bit less with purchasing. So if you guys recall my... I think one last blog post or the one before on my Gartner blog was kind of about why we value inquiry visibility. So we typically would give advice based on what people actually have done and what worked. And again, we may miss something innovative, but not for corrupt reasons. We miss it because we would occasionally choose something that's been tested in real world over something that looks promising. I think that we do periodically hear, I mean, we, in this case, we broadly speak in IT industry, I guess, hear some kind of a corruption stories about how somebody is more about buying influence. You know, it's kind of funny because people who leave analyst firms very often tell that actually it's not true. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because they, I mean, obviously current analysts are expected to say that's not true, but uh, there was a post from somebody who just left Gartner uh, on LinkedIn earlier today. Uh, and he said, well, I can tell you I'm not subscribed to any kind of policy because I left the firm, but I can tell you that in many cases it's not pay-to-play because it's not about that. There's about other factors. Yeah. So to me, I would say across the analyst firms, it probably has a spectrum. Yeah. But in my seven years here at Gartner, I haven't noticed anything which kind of smelled like pay-to-play. So it seems like security can be sold as a product, as a service, as a feature, you know, where mm -hmm. providers bake security into their offerings for competitive advantage, or it can just be like their, their area of expertise. How do you see the balance of these types of offerings in the marketplace changing over the coming years? Uh, so in this case, I'll refer to yet another blog post from the last few weeks, <laughs> because the one thing I want to point out here is that I have a bit of a fear that security is falling a lot more to services than in the past. Mm -hmm. And I do encounter organizations that simply don't have time to pick a critical security task that you think is absolutely essential and you're going to die if you don't do it. And they say, actually, we don't have time for it. Why mm -hmm. is that a fear, though? How is it a fear? It seems like specialization is a natural part of growth. Doesn't it tie back to the, the analyst question, though, where, where people are creating the fear 
even though it's not entirely rational, just in order to build their businesses. And so the actual threat model gets lost in the purchase order discussion. But we can't ask everyone to be an expert in everything. Like we no, just no. Can't. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, Anton, but I don't think that's what you're saying. You're saying that there's a desire on the part of consultants to persuade enterprises that uh, even basic security stuff is hard. No, I don't think that's that's at all. They're just checking a box. No, I don't. I think it's the other around. I think that I would talk to a client and uh, they may say that actually that's a particular story inspired by a real conversation where they said, we don't have time to do log management. And Mm -hmm. I said, log management actually doesn't take that much time. I mean, perhaps some kind of analytics effort requires an expert, but log management, you know, a monkey can do it. It's very easy. And they said, you know what? We just don't have time for it. And I said, this to me was kind of eye-opening because I'm like, well, actually, you guys are busy. Well, but log management seems like a great example of something that you should outsource because it's not key to delivering value to customers. There are lots of people out there that can do it more cost-effectively you know, and more scalably. Like, mm-hmm. and, and the thing is, it's not logs itself. It's all of the tens of thousands of little things that mm-hmm. comprise building and maintaining an infrastructure that together add up to an infinite amount of time. And you just have to make hard decisions yeah. about where your time goes. Mm, that's true, but also people who try to outsource more occasionally had a bad time. Yeah, sometimes. And, uh, so, so sometimes in, in the monitoring detection area, we do see a lot of uh, discussions with clients about managed security services, which were frankly kind of a disaster. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's it's funny because it's almost like sometimes I see in my rare depressed moments, I see that outsourcing <laughs> security has failed. Doing security on your own has failed, and uh, you know using consultants for security has also failed. So essentially, and by the way, using giving it to machines has also failed. Oh yeah. So like, who's doing it well, and what are they doing? I would say that I see more successes down the path of being very tactical with some of these delegation, outsourcing, services decisions. So instead of saying, "Here's money, give me security," mm-hmm. which almost never goes well, I may tell you that hey, I don't have time to do logs, but I have time to profile my users, profile access to see where they're doing something unusual. So you deal with my logs, but you give me access to this part of the system so I can actually see which of my users are behaving badly. Mm -hmm. So I would outsource very tactically and hopefully you do a good job with keeping my logs and I would do a job that only I can do because I know my users and you don't. So to me, I've seen more of the this type of a mesh of services and products. It's like the innovation tokens theory, that famous Dan post by uh, Dan, where he says, if you're a startup, mm-hmm. imagine you have three innovation tokens, mm-hmm. spend them wisely. Yes. And you want to spend them on the things that are your core, you know, how you provide value to users, or you know, in right. this sense, you know, it's the things that you know could make or break you as a business. Those are the things you should spend your security tokens on. Mm-hmm. True, that I, I like that, but there's a bit of a fear because some of your questioning kind of leans towards a position that I see is very risky. Because we do see some companies who say, we're going to outsource all of it because security is not our core business. This kind of goes uh, like people mm. who say... But security is a human thing. Yeah, but the thing is, it's like, you don't say, you don't say like not dying in a fire is your core business. <laughs> so I would not do any sprinklers because I would just hire somebody to like magically protect me. You can't pay for security because it involves educating your users and figuring out your personal risk profile and getting everyone's buy-in into it. Everyone in your org has to be bought into what you decide is your level of security. So this ties in really well to this discussion that's been going on around Elon Musk and his submarine for the caves, Mm -hmm. which was this amazing collision between Silicon Valley's idea of engineering-led innovation and just 
parachuting a technocrat in there mm -hmm. versus the safety culture that was represented by the cave divers and that you see mm -hmm. in emergency medical care and, and aviation accident investigation. And so you had these two very different ways of approaching. And in this particular case, the safety culture was clearly superior because the boys got out mm -hmm. before Elon even got his, his, his sub down there. I see InfoSec playing so strongly on the Elon Musk side of the fence. And a lot of my knee-jerk reaction against InfoSec marketing is that it is all based on, on fear and this, this idea of the superior technocrat. How do you see that, that safety culture versus innovation discussion playing out? You know, um, I think that you described perfectly exactly one half of security. <laughs> because the other half is very often about people who are very much mired in the 1980s type of rulemaking, you know, access control, you know, rainbow series, mainframes. I've hacked into the mainframe. Right. I'm in. And it's almost like they're not about innovation. They're kind of about the country, the culture of no and like, mm -hmm. oh, we've always done it. And no, you know, you don't get access because we never gave access to such and such role. So some of the security does not feel like a very innovation-led silver bullet kind of stuff. Some of it feels like Oh, we're going to be compliant with, let's pick something really old, uh, NIST 853. This is like a NIST guidance for FISMA, I think. So it's like early 2000s, maybe late 90s. And they're going to just go by the book. And it's, the book is a friggin' 20 years old. Yeah. So I think the security is a really bizarre mix of like slapdash innovation, which is sometimes disconnected from the real world. And something that's very old rules, 1980s type government stuff that was probably not relevant to most startups today and most regular businesses, but they still push it. So I don't know, it's kind of hacked submarine and something like a steam submarine from the 1903 that barely... It's a civil war submarine, yeah. It's a civil war submarine, yeah. that's exactly right. So yeah. because it sort of like goes one way only down, but that's a separate story. <laughs> and that's that's totally fair. Um, I, I accept and embrace your, your qualification, but how can we be better? I mean, we're living in a world where our infrastructure is vulnerable to like massive state-backed attacks with you know hugely negative consequences. InfoSec really needs to step up and it, it can't step up with this jerry-rigged arrangement. What, what do we need to do? Yeah. You know, throwing my hands in the air. <laughs> you know what? I'll probably do the same and throw my hands in the air because <laughs> I don't think we're going to answer this one, but I will offer one direction that may fly. So I think security, this type of security innovation is certainly agile, but my fear is that we are kind of agile about the wrong things because we may build something really cool and very rapidly and it would be agile, but it would be agile not in the way business or the rest of IT is agile. So it's like we see more, let's pick something, like um, how to analyze network traffic using machine learning and less about how to secure containers. So IT is moving in a certain direction and security is very agile and innovative, just not in the same place. <laughs> so it's almost like, can we preserve some of this engineering marvels, but like aim them at more real problems? I, I don't think that's a solvable problem in a, in a one-hour conversation. I think there are analogies to, it needs to become boring. Mm. It needs to be human-centered and it needs to become boring. And like, two facts should become... As, not 1980s rules boring. No, I'm talking like you use a key to open your door boring. Mm -hmm. That's just expected. It's mm -hmm. standardized. There's nothing flashy or cool about it. It's just how the world is supposed to work and you have instincts around it that serve you. 
And like we haven't really done that in security. I don't feel. Yeah, it'd be boring if the landscape changes, though. I don't. I don't think that's fly. That's fly. I mean, the door doesn't change. Right. Uh, We're yeah. dealing with a set of assumptions that are enormously in flux, and we haven't developed habits that promote public health and hygiene around them. Yeah, I was talking with a friend earlier today about. What if I could design a curriculum for fifth graders, like as part of home ec? Mm-hmm. It was just like, you know, a month long about security, how to protect yourself, how best practices. What would that look like? I, I guess that's my question for you. What would that look like? And what products do you think that we would need to build or standardize in order to make it tractable? And then my friend, of course, cracks so that the fifth graders could teach their grandparents. Yeah, but here's the thing. Uh, I I would point back to the landscape change. And I I mean, then there's like to highlight the threat landscape changes. But frankly, I would point at IT landscape change because uh, a lot of threats we deal with are pretty much the 1990s threats. Okay, Mm -hmm. we didn't have ransomware in the 90s. Fine. But we had malware and ransomware is a type of malware. Mm -hmm. But IT, though, has become quite different, right? I mean, we do deal a lot with SaaS, with cloud, with containers, with virtualization, with mobility, And so I almost have a fear that you have to teach fifth graders a lot more of this type of extrapolation framework skills and not the tools and technologies. Because when the fifth graders do go into the operational roles in IT, assuming some of them do, they would see something very different. We teach kids not to get into cars with strangers. Mm. Yeah. It's the tip of a very deep question because it goes well beyond technical skills when the threat landscape is really about social engineering. I mean, most of the really severe attacks that we've looked at were based on appealing to people's better nature and and then subverting that. Or fear. (laughs) Yeah, and you you have to teach fifth graders a better theory of mind and a better systems understanding of of game theory. I mean, I hate to say it's time for some game theory, but <laughs> it, it really is. Also, and fifth graders love game theory. <laughs> True, but also this is, is kind of hard to distill some of this today's realities. We also make a lot of repeat mistakes in security. Yeah. Like, uh, and to me, that's, uh, you know, I mean, I know the security guys kind of blame developers often, but uh, a lot of the secure code practices, uh, mistakes have been repeated. I mean, the example was always the very early 90s attack called Ping of Death because mm-hmm. of a very large buffer, yep. blah, blah, blah. But the point is that somebody told me that the mobile devices of the late 2000s, some of them had Ping of Death vulnerability. And then now IoT in late 2010s, some of the devices have Ping of Death vulnerability. Yeah. So it's like a coding problem survives from 1993, I think, is when it was to, to 2018. This is a great point. Like Developers and operations get a lot of heat for not adequately securing their products and services. At the same time, a lot of InfoSec tooling and capabilities have a very distinctly by-security people for security people for security. sort of feel to them. They don't like they can be very similar to products in other spaces and yet they feel completely differently. It gives off these waves of not for you, not for you. There is a priesthood and you're not in it, you know? Mm-hmm. So how can devs and ops take more ownership of their security by integrating these security principles and capabilities into their day-to-day functions? How can we increase the ownership so that it's not such a priesthood? You know, I would still try to separate, uh, kind of build a line a little bit, and maybe on the one side, there would be a set of tools where we need to do it, and there would be a type of a category of, of practices or tools where you kind of don't have to do it. I don't understand. What? Like, for example, my colleagues on the team deal with application security. So that means security of applications. So they deal with developers, and they deal with uh, things of that sort. So like network security is about networking. So all these domains, what you said applies. Now, think about something like threat intelligence and understanding the attacker motivations. It doesn't have the IT brother. Like AppSec has an IT brother, application development. 
NetSec has an IT brother, networking. System security has an IT brother, but Threat Intel does not have an IT brother. I'm going to disagree with you there. I think the IT brother is customer empathy. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a very tenuous connection. Oh, no, a connection. no, no, let me explain. Oh, yeah. One of the uh -huh. challenges that engineers have is that engineering is a fundamentally optimistic discipline, and mm -hmm. engineers build platforms with the idea that the street will find its own uses for things, that, that people mm -hmm. will take what they build and do cool stuff with it. Yeah. Security is about paranoia and fear, and, and that's what makes it difficult for engineers to think about misuses of their platform up the front. But if we expand the idea of user empathy to include malicious mm -hmm. actors... Yep. I think we can bring those two There's domains closer together. There's a lot of similarities between this parallel that you're drawing between dev and security and just dev and ops, you yeah. know? Ops is always about the no, you know, oh, the, we're scared to impose change in the system. Yeah. Developers, are, mm. developers are like, wee, all the changes. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like part of what I hear you saying is that there will always need to be experts. And absolutely agreed. But, okay, for example, I've been working in engineering since I was 17. I've always been in, in some sort of operations data role, and I've never worked with a dedicated security person. Mm -hmm. uh, there was just it was just expected that these are the basics that every good engineer yeah. knows how to do, you know, x amount of stuff and then you rely on experts periodically if it exceeds your zone of these are just the basics, you know. Yep. Like, you know, it's like unlocking your house with a key. Well, you use passwordless SH, yeah. you know, all the, all of these yeah. best practices. Yeah. But I feel like I mean learning that this is very unusual. You know, I think that some chunks of security kind of like cross the divide. Like, for example, mm -hmm. firewalls in many cases are network engineering managed, and maybe like antivirus is deployed by the desktop team. Some of the coding mistakes are prevented by developers. So to me, there's certainly uh, like, a, like a bit of a train that leaves from security land to IT ops land or dev land, and that's fine. But certain pieces, I think, still stay. And I mean, not your comment about TI, uh, threat and tell, non-understanding. I think certain pieces of security kind of haven't journeyed into IT yet. So I feel like maybe what I'm hearing you say is that instead of building the software for security users, they need to get better at embodying the users that they're building for, like building these tools to, to just feel and look, look and smell native to developers and operations. I would say in most cases, but not all. I mean, to me, there would still be certain domains where don't really fit in the normal IT kind of landscape. Like what? Um, so my example of Threat and Tell, and I think you guys kind of uh, mm -hmm. mostly, I mean, at least a decent attempt to derail this example. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, give, you, I'll give you that. So um, a lot of the situations where you actually have to deal with attackers, like even incident response. So incident response yes. in security is very different from the ITIL incident response. And almost, I almost tell people that you should like unlearn a lot of the IT, my PC is slow, to I'm hacked by the Chinese. Yeah, like assume good intent and like blameless postmortems and everything. Like yeah. I've actually responded to some incidents where we found hackers in our system and we had to do everything. And I remember Googling and trying to learn it on the fly yeah. while doing oh, wow. it. <laughs> it's terrifying. I mean, we got through it. It was fine. We had to do reset all of our passwords at Second Life and email our users uh, telling them that it had happened. Well. No big deal. <laughs> anyway. So like IR is an example where I think that a lot of this benefits from backgrounds other than IT. It may be psychology, it may be law enforcement, and then military, I don't know. But the point is not IT. So some of it, I think, is stays with the narrowly defined domain of InfoSec. But a bunch of stuff need to get on a train and leave in IT. You're right. Yeah. 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 So um, this is, uh, relatedly, like everyone who works in a security operations center is 
completely, totally, and like sometimes hopelessly overwhelmed. And a big part of that is lack of context for the alerts they're getting, Mm -hmm. not knowing what alerts they aren't getting, what's falling through the cracks. It's not obvious from the data collection that's being done. You know, it's always, it's easier to respond to the things that bark in the middle of the night. And security people being the paranoid people that they are, spend a lot of time just worrying and fretting about what they aren't seeing as Mm -hmm. they should. Mm -hmm. Well, hence, that's what made threat hunting uh, kind of appear as a practice, right? Uh, When people actually go and say, we're going to look at the data, not, we're not going to wait for an alert. And we wouldn't yep. sleep yep. badly. Absolutely. We're just going to go look at the data, figure out whether we missed them. Well, so that's my question. Like, what technologies or capabilities or approaches, this is a great one, but what else is out there that can help with this signal-to-noise ratio? Yeah, and that's a, that's a problem that commonly comes up in client calls for us. So I would say that some organizations really put the energy into the alert triage, kind of like get more context, validate the alerts with different systems. You know, if you see an alert in from a login system, they're going to hit an endpoint, you know, gather more data. So some of it is about gathering data, but some of it is also following the playbooks. I mean, we, we look at the orchestration automation space where they look at sort of a, a system that gets an alert and enriches it, adds more context, verifies certain things, and then tells to a human, hey, human, this alert, I think we can close it because X, Y, and Z. And then eventually you can automate it and say, you know, I trust your system, just close it. What are some examples of security alerts that would go off like that? So, for example, if you have an alert that's ultimately about somebody failing to authenticate many times. So it may happen for many operational reasons, like user forgot the password and tried it five times. Mm -hmm. And it may be something that if it happens 100 times a minute, then it's probably somebody scripted this or they're guessing the password. It may be a security question, but it may be in between. So there would be a set of steps that a human would go through to validate. Is this a mistake or is this a malicious password guessing? And you can automate some of the validation mm-hmm. steps. Not everybody does. Some people just go give it to a human and say, hey, human, Ugh. go figure it out. That's and terrible. That's kind of terrible, yeah. But others try to say, okay, so what happened with, with the same user in the past? What else happened yeah. in the same system? What was Yeah, the, that's the thing. Like, anytime you've yeah. automated it away, you've introduced the possibility for someone to learn how you've automated it and get around it. Yeah, I think that's more often an irrational fear because to me, the attackers are busy with other stuff <laughs> and have other things to do. Well, it depends on how determined they are. Like, yeah. if an attacker is determined, they're getting in is pretty much. Yes, yes. I wanted to maybe draw an analogy between this and like uh, banking laws. You know how we created this massive corpus of very small, fine-grained rules to try and keep you know the financial system from collapsing again, instead of introducing like the Volcker rule, where banks just can't hold more leverage than you know X percentage, which kept us pretty safe for uh, many decades. Yeah. But it prevented them from growing too big to fail, Charity. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm really a buzzkill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like how do you feel about that trade-off between many small, you know, complex rule sets, which you know you could look at more like an emergent sort of like machine learning type path, or just like don't try a password reset more than like twice in a minute. You know. So you know, I almost like jumping in my chair to answer this one because uh, I dealt a lot with PCI compliance in the past and uh, and data compliance, and so it's almost like many debates when people who are involved with compliance, you know, get into a bar and have you know, have drinks. The question of broad goal-based compliance, like say, do a risk assessment, follow the results, do something about what you found, versus very granular rules, like say, reset passwords every 37 minutes. I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating, but the point is that we do see people try the former and the latter, and Mm -hmm. there are different failure modes. Of course, with the detailed rules, people just start obsessing about tricking the rules and forget the goal. 
But with goal-based rules, they say, oh, screw it. We accept all the risk. Risk assessment. Yeah, we've done it. There are some risks. We accept them. Bye. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they don't do anything. But in the other case, they don't do anything because they just try to check the boxes. So I would give you like honest to goodness answer. I don't know. I feel I lived a lot when I had to defend finely granular rules like PCI. And I think I build a, a lot of good arguments as to why the detailed rules, password change mm -hmm. every 30 days, patch every 15 days, you know, respond to alerts within 24 hours. I've spent a lot of years of my life defending that, but I also see it fail spectacularly. So I have a slight preference for detailed rules because maybe I have a low amount of faith in humanity. I don't know. Uh, I, I've seen people who really advocate the goal-based rules where they say, look at your risks rationally and then decide what to do about them and then do it. I've seen it work well. So at this point, I don't know. This is a painful question. Nothing yeah. works yet is what you're saying. Yeah. Both routes have bad failure modes. I, I don't yeah. think nothing works. I think that's too drastic. I think I'm yeah. oversimplifying, of course. Okay. But maybe I mean maybe there's some kind of harmonious hybrid, but I haven't seen it. Maybe. <laughs> sure. So and everyone gets a pony. Everybody gets a pony with a unicorn horn on it. <laughs> well, you bring up compliance, and this is a big driver for companies to make investments in security, right? GDPR, yes. SOC two. Um, what are the strengths and the weaknesses of that movement, which is kind of partly what you were just addressing? Um, I would say that the positive to me is, uh, the, the obvious positive is that it motivates people who would otherwise do nothing. Like mm. if they blatantly just accept all risks or prefer not to know their risks, compliance uh, auditor would come up, you know, get a hammer and like slam them over, over the heads and they would say, wow, okay, we got to do something. So to me, this is a positive moment. Now, if what they think of is slam, we got to do something. Oh, what should we do? We have to cheat the auditor. Yeah. So yeah. That does yeah. happen. And in this case, this positive moment of motivating security improvements have been kind of squandered. But to me, the motivational yeah. power is there. So people who otherwise would do nothing have done something. Yeah. So like, just bring this back to observability a little bit. I wonder how you think about the emergent nexus of security and observability. To me, it seems like the biggest headwater is just that mostly people don't want to know. Because if they know about a problem, then they have to take action on it. What are your thoughts on, on that? I would say that we have finally departed from the prevention-heavy world. And I think that was one of the themes I wanted to bring up, is that, hmm. is that we have lived for a good number of years where people just wanted to build higher walls and, mm -hmm. and kind of hope for the best. And if you spend years building a higher wall, you tend to be committed to this approach. And you don't really remember about the detection, the visibility, the observability side at all, because you just like full of hope that the Ohio wall would work. And it's kind of funny, security guys are supposed to be paranoid, but then they still engage in higher wall building. So their paranoia yeah. wasn't like, oh my God, who dug under the wall? It was like, oh my God, our wall is not high enough. And I'm like, what the hell? How, how paranoid yeah. you really are? <laughs> they dug a tunnel. <laughs> yeah, like, paranoia, your paranoia is just like yeah. inadequate. <laughs> and so to me, the visibility and getting more data about the environment is kind of a big deal. And I think more companies yeah. are waking up. <laughs> I have a question for both of you on this mm -hmm. point. The Tesla hack in, in February, you know, the one where they were using Tesla servers to, to mine Bitcoin, wouldn't observability-driven approach have picked that up earlier than it was picked up? You know, probably a preventative approach would have stopped it. I mean, to me, this seems like a low-end, this seems like a fairly low-end problem. It's not exactly, you know, the Chinese stealing the electric car secrets, right? It's more about somebody <laughs> mining Bitcoin. Which is why so. it's fun to speculate about, you know. So, so I think that it's a question of, Observability is, can you ask any question? And 
and you still have to have the desire to go and ask the question. Now, we see outliers all the time in our systems of various types. I have no doubt that that these servers generated all kinds of outliers. You know, network traffic was probably saturated. Um, CPU is probably off the charts. You know, resource consumption was certainly impacted. So often what, what we find is even people who roll out very sophisticated observability, they don't have the time or the curiosity, the inclination yeah. to and and you can't go track down every single outlier that you see. So it has to be an outlier that in some way impacted your code running or your, you know, the execution of your daily activities. Because that's what like if you're just sitting if I'm just sitting there and I see some blips on the wall, I'm like, well, who knows, you know? But if I am investigating something because something's yeah. wrong and I see some blips, I'm gonna go, ah, I'm gonna go look at mm-hmm. those. So I think the answer is Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, it certainly has the ability to, but it needs the human element too. I would say the part about anomalies being kind of, uh, and that's, that's basically the hell I give often to the vendors who have all sorts of machine learning, machine learning stuff, right? Because they say they show anomalies that are mathematically anomalous, but operationally not anomalous. If you don't think you have any anomalies in your system, then your tools are just terrible. Right, right. But the point is many anomalies are benign. It's just anomalous. Yeah, absolutely. It's mathematically strange, but operationally not strange at all. So to me, that's why I have a bit of a fear that some people who want to rely too much on automation would end up being flooded by by anomalies of, of the mathematical kind and not of the operational. Well, this kind. is this is why you know everybody wants machine learning and AI to take care of their problems for them. But in fact, a false positives are incredibly expensive, and B, like you said, your systems are flooded with anomalies at any given time. And if you're shipping code every day, like your baseline is changing too, and you can't train your corpus of data off of anyone else's production systems. It has to be local to, to, to you. Yes, correct. To a large extent, that's that's exactly correct. That's why I'm a little bit afraid of the ML claims. I mean, I've seen them. Oh, I'm not afraid. I think they're going to crash and burn, and I'm pretty stoked about it. <laughs> I think that there are narrow areas where it works somewhat well. And, Absolutely. But as far as like, oh, we're just going to give it. Are to they going to put me out of a job? I don't yeah, think no, so. No, no, that's not happening. Probably any time, not like within short time. But my, it can happen when I'm dead. That's <laughs> yeah, fine. later on, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and you know, my rant number three is people always want to talk about the algos like they're you know magically yeah. uh, intellectually Still pure and divorced from <laughs> context. But even the way we talk them. about this reflects our biases. Yeah, calling unusual events black swans. Until I was yeah. twenty-one, I'd never seen any other kind of swan. <laughs> black right. swans are like yeah. pigeons where I grow <laughs> up. You know. Oh, cool. All right. So I think this is our last question. If you're a hegemon for the day, what one security-related law globally would you impose on the world? Say 10 years. No one can alter it or repeal it. And what one law would you repeal just to try and make the world a better place for humans and security? Mm, That's a tough one because uh, I just spent some time explaining how maybe high-level goals don't work, but, but also detailed guidance that tied to specific tech also don't work. So that's why I'm very kind of tempted to chicken out of this question and say, uh, in all honesty, I don't think laws are the answer. So to me, part of my answer would be that, can you really legislate security, even if you have a magic wand and like omniscient, you know? So do you think that security laws are absolutely pointless then? I think that short of the motivating people to explore security and figure out what to do, there has been a 
decent balance of good and bad because sometimes I think that for me it would be something around user privacy. I think that I would probably think hard about something to pass around legislating, you know, some something around the user's right to privacy and possibly mm. the expiration of their data. You're, you're um, very legislation happy today I'm, for a libertarian. It's my question and I just want to answer, <laughs> goddammit. Um, can I pick some laws I'd like to see enforced? Yes. That, <laughs> yeah. That's you know, really of interest oh, to It's kind of funny because this is actually a good way to kind of, uh, you know, maybe attack you a little bit because we talked about observ- observability, right? And to me, observability and transparency are much better better values than privacy, like better spiritual goals. Like I am a transparency observability guy and I'm not a privacy guy. I'd rather have the record. And so, you know, we can debate who should have access to the record, but I'd rather have it than not have it. So privacy, I'm not sure. I am, I've been kind of uh, trying to be a little bit the other way because I'm afraid of people who essentially push totalitarian privacy driven regimes to me that's kind of the opposite to me to me right to be forgotten is this, privacy regimes yeah you know you're right i mean maybe i'm strange but to me <laughs> to me when i read uh, first time when i read about right to be forgotten i remember that in stalin's years in soviet union stalin uh, the henchman would actually edit people out of books and to me that what i thought is that, that to me right to be forgotten is stalinism this is people editing history this is horrible, and I freaked out. Well, it has to be. It has to involve agency, right? The entire point of this has to be that it's not imposed upon you. It it enhances your personal agency to drive your own life narrative. But who's the judge? And so I, I'm nervous well, about that. So I would say I'm more afraid of that. Oh, you are. Well, and now we're safe. I'm the okay. one with the agency. No, no. no, just kidding. Anyway, yeah. And, and my counterexample to the the Stalinist approach of airbrushing history is that when Google Buzz was introduced, one of my friends who had successfully eluded her abuse of ex-husband, uh, because Google Buzz connected your friends of friends to your friends uh-huh. through contact details, her abusive right. ex-husband found her home address. So people who are not privileged, people who come mm-hmm. from any of the intersectional marginal identities have a lot right. more reason than, with respect, white men to, uh, to want to protect their privacy. And those reasons sometimes boil down to life or death. So I just wanted to throw that perspective in yes. there. Yes, I, I, I would go with that. And I think that when I wrote my anti-privacy rant, I got a couple <laughs> of comments to that extent on the yeah. blog. Is basically people said, well, I didn't get the, I mean, now I kind of get it, but on the blog, I didn't quite get the whole white man angle to that. But I think that I've seen the whole persecuted groups angle yes. for sure. Like yeah. if you have something to fear, then surely you shouldn't be publicly known in you know, here and there. So to me, and I guess my, my point about agency is just that nobody knows that but you. You know, and I think that giving people the tools and the power to no, because no? people generally don't want bad stuff to be known for no good reason. Like I, I committed a crime, and I don't want you to know because hey, I have agency. No, I think transparency trumps it. Transparency trumps it. Well, okay, now that's a completely different issue. Like if you have committed a crime, you give up certain freedoms. So now I'm going to play devil's advocate and argue against my own interest, which is Parabon has been doing this incredible work closing cold cases by getting DNA from rape kits 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the investigators put them up on Ancestry.com and the other DNA sites. They find close family members and then they trace the family tree to find the killer. And this is how they found the Golden State killer. This is how they found the, the cold case the other day. I feel really, really confused yeah. about that because, on the one hand, justice and lock them yeah. up. On the other hand, you on the can other never hand, hide. oh Jesus, yeah, my <laughs> DNA is mine, and yeah. that's super creepy and weird. So I'm, yeah, I'm having a lot of emotions about it. 
Yeah, DNA, yes, but like your name, your likeness, I'm not I'm not sold it's yours. And I think that I almost like I'm surprised about it because in the same blog post, I kind of said that, you know, this is like uniquely Western concept. And in some other countries like China, maybe Russia, maybe others, this is kind of not how people think about it. So I, I think that I'm not... Yes. Well, the communitarian cultures uh, continue clashing with, you know, mm-hmm. our idea of modern... I, I don't anyway. think that's a democracy totalitarianism. I think I didn't it's, say it's, that. It's, I said communitarian. Oh, ah, communitarian versus okay, individualistic. Uh, that may that will give you a maybe on this one. I don't know because, but to me that's a big, interesting debate to have. So basically, my short answer to your question as far as privacy, probably I would not do privacy laws because I'm afraid of them going wrong, and I'm still afraid of GDPR going wrong. By the way, too. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, what's the worst case scenario for GDPR? Uh, Europe becomes a digital third world where technology beyond typewriter is forbidden. Yeah. Yeah. That's the like super extrapolated vision where Europe is a technology-free zone, is an IT-free zone. Well, with that nightmare vision of 1930s Paris, <laughs> yes. we've taken up so much of your time. Anton, it's been an absolute delight. Thank we'd you. love to have you on again. Um, we barely scratched the surface of stuff that we can discuss here. So thank you so much. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O11YCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Have a lovely day.